observation for our present interest is that when God is called the Father of believers, we have close similarity of expression to that which we find in these cases just cited, where there can be no question that the person of the Trinity in view is the Father, the first person. In Romans 1.7 we have the salutation, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See also 1 Corinthians 1.3, 2 Corinthians 1.2, Galatians 1.3, Ephesians 1.2, Philippians 1.2, Philemon 3, and see also Galatians 1.4, Philippians 4.20, Colossians 1.2, 1 Thessalonians 1.3 and 3.11 and 13, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2. In such passages as these, not only is there the similarity of expression to the titles God the Father and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also the person denominated God our Father is distinguished from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this means simply that the person who is called our Father is distinct from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is equivalent to saying that it is the Father who is our Father. In this same connection, 2 Thessalonians 2.16 illustrates well the distinctness of the first person as the person in view in the fatherly relation which God sustains to men. But our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who graced us and gave us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. On the basis of this evidence, we are led to the conclusion that when God is thought of in terms of adoption as our Heavenly Father or our Father, it is the first person of the Trinity, the person who is specifically the Father who is in view. The people of God are the sons of God the Father, and He sustains to them this highest and most intimate of relationships. This fact enhances the marvel of the relationship established by adoption. The first person of the Godhead is not only the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but is also the God and Father of those who believe in Jesus' name. The relation of God as Father to the Son must not be equated, of course, with the relation of God as Father to men. Eternal generation must not be equated with adoption. Our Lord himself guarded the distinction. He did not include the disciples with himself and in community with them call the Father, our Father. He said to his disciples, After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father who art in heaven, Matthew 6, 9. He did not, and as a matter of fact could not, pray with them the prayer he taught them to pray. And he said to Mary Magdalene, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and my God and your God, John 20, verse 17. But though the relation of fatherhood differs, it is the same person who is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ in the ineffable mystery of the Trinity who is the father of believers in the mystery of his adoptive grace. God the Father is not only the specific agent in the act of adoption, he also constitutes those who believe in Jesus' name his own children. Could anything disclose the marvel of adoption or certify the security of its tenure and privilege more effectively than the fact that the Father himself, on account of whom are all things and through whom are all things, who made the captain of salvation perfect through sufferings, becomes by deed of grace the Father of the many sons whom he will bring to glory. And that is the reason why the captain of salvation himself is not ashamed to call them brethren and can exult with joy unspeakable 
Behold I and the children whom God hath given to me. Hebrews 2.13 Chapter 7 Sanctification The Presuppositions Sanctification is an aspect of the application of redemption. In the application of redemption there is order, and the order is one of progression until it reaches its consummation in the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Romans 8.21 and 30 Sanctification is not the first step in the application of redemption. It presupposes other steps, such as effectual calling, regeneration, justification, and adoption. All of these bear intimately upon sanctification. The two anterior steps, or aspects, which are particularly relevant to sanctification are calling and regeneration. Sanctification is a work of God in us, and calling and regeneration are acts of God which have their immediate effects in us. Calling is addressed to our consciousness and elicits response in our consciousness. Regeneration is renewal which registers itself in our consciousness in the exercises of faith and repentance, love and obedience. There are also other considerations which show the particular relevance of calling and regeneration to the process of sanctification. It is by calling that we are united to Christ, and it is this union with Christ which binds the people of God to the efficacy and virtue by which they are sanctified. Regeneration is wrought by the Holy Spirit, John 3, verses 3, 5, 6, and 8, and by this act the people of God become indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They become, in New Testament terms, spiritual. Sanctification is specifically the work of this indwelling and directing Holy Spirit. An all-important consideration derived from the priority of calling and regeneration is that sin is dethroned in every person who is effectually called and regenerated. Calling unites to Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.9, and if the person called is united to Christ, he is united to him in the virtue of his death and the power of his resurrection. He is dead to sin, the old man has been crucified, the body of sin has been destroyed, Sin does not have the dominion. Romans 6, verses 2-6 through and 14. In Romans 6:14, Paul is not simply giving an exhortation. He is making an apodictic statement to the effect that sin will not have dominion over the person who is under grace. He gives exhortation in very similar language in the context, but here he is making an emphatic negation. Sin will not have dominion. If we view the question from the standpoint of regeneration, we reach the same conclusion. The Holy Spirit is the controlling and directing agent in every regenerate person. Hence the fundamental principle, the governing disposition, the prevailing character of every regenerate person is holiness. He is spiritual, and he delights in the law of the Lord after the inward man. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 14 and 15 and Romans 7.22 This must be the sense in which John speaks of the regenerate person as not doing sin and as unable to sin, 1 John 3.9 and 5.18. It is not that he is sinless, 1 John 1, verse 8 and 2, verse 1. What John is stressing is surely the fact that the regenerate person cannot commit the sin that is unto death, 1 John 5.16. He cannot deny that Jesus is the Son of God and has come in the flesh, 1 John 4 verses 1 through 4 He cannot abandon himself again to iniquity. He keeps himself, and the evil one does not touch him. 
Greater is he who is in the believer than he who is in the world. 1 John 4.4 We must appreciate this teaching of Scripture. Everyone called effectually by God and regenerated by the Spirit has secured the victory in the terms of Romans 6.14, 1 John 3.9, and chapter 5, verses 4 and 18. And this victory is actual, or it is nothing. It is a reflection upon and a deflection from the pervasive New Testament witness to speak of it as merely potential or positional. It is actual and practical as much as anything comprised in the application of redemption is actual and practical. Respecting this freedom from the dominion of sin, this victory over the power of sin, it is likewise to be recognized that it is not achieved by a process nor by our striving or working to that end. It is achieved once for all by union with Christ and the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. Perfectionists are right when they insist that this victory is not achieved by us, nor by working or striving or laboring. They are correct in maintaining that it is a momentary act realized by faith. But they also make three radical mistakes, mistakes which distort their whole construction of sanctification. Number one, they fail to recognize that this victory is the possession of everyone who is born again and effectually called. Number two, they construe the victory as a blessing separable from the state of justification. Number three, they represent it as something very different from what the scripture represents it to be. They portray it as freedom from sinning or freedom from conscious sin. It is wrong to use these texts to support any other view of the victory entailed than that which the scripture teaches it to be, namely, the radical breach with the power and love of sin which is necessarily the possession of everyone who has been united to Christ. Union with Christ is union with him in the efficacy of his death and in the virtue of his resurrection. He who thus died and rose again with Christ is freed from sin and sin will not exercise the dominion. The Concern of Sanctification This deliverance from the power of sin secured by union with Christ and from the defilement of sin secured by regeneration, does not eliminate all sin from the heart and life of the believer. There is still indwelling sin. See Romans 6.20 and 7 verses 14-25 and 1 John 1 verse 8 and chapter 2 verse 1. The believer is not yet so conformed to the image of Christ that he is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Sanctification is concerned precisely with this fact and it has as its aim the elimination of all sin and complete confirmation to the image of God's own Son to be holy as the Lord is holy. If we take the concept of entire sanctification seriously, we are shut up to the conclusion that it will not be realized until the body of our humiliation will be transformed into the likeness of the body of Christ's glory when the corruptible will put on incorruption and the mortal will put on immortality. Philippians 3.21 and 1 Corinthians 15.54 We must appreciate the gravity of that which sanctification is concerned. There are several respects in which this must be viewed. Number one, all sin in the believer is the contradiction of God's holiness. Sin does not change its character as sin because the person in whom it dwells and by whom it is committed is a believer. It is true that the believer sustains a new relation to God. There is no judicial condemnation for him 
and the judicial wrath of God does not rest upon him. Romans 8.1 God is his Father, and he is God's Son. The Holy Spirit dwells in him and is his advocate. Christ is the believer's advocate with the Father. But the sin which resides in the believer and which he commits is of such a character that it deserves the wrath of God and the fatherly displeasure of God is evoked by this sin. Remaining indwelling sin is therefore the contradiction of all that he is as a regenerate person and son of God. It is the contradiction of God himself after whose image he has been recreated. We feel the tremor of the apostle's solicitude when he says, My little children, these things I write unto you in order that ye sin not. 1 John 2, 1. Lest there should be any disposition to take sin for granted, to be content with the status quo, to indulge sin, or turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, John is jealous to summon believers to the remembrance that everyone who has hope in God purifies himself even as he is pure. 1 John 3, 3. And that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. 1 John 2.16 Number 2. The presence of sin in the believer involves conflict in his heart and life. If there is remaining indwelling sin, there must be the conflict which Paul describes in Romans 7, verse 14. It is futile to argue that this conflict is not normal. If there is still sin to any degree in one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then there is tension, yes, contradiction, within the heart of that person. Indeed, the more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of his love to God, the more persistent his yearning for the attainment of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, the more conscious will he be of the gravity of the sin which remains, and the more poignant will be his detestation of it. The more closely he comes to the holiest of all, the more he apprehends the sinfulness that is his, and he must cry out, O wretched man that I am. Romans 7.24 Was this not the effect in all the people of God, as they came into closer proximity to the revelation of God's holiness? Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6, 5 I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42, verses 5 and 6 Truly biblical sanctification has no affinity with the self-complacency which ignores or fails to take into account the sinfulness of every lack of conformity to the image of him who was holy, harmless, and undefiled. Ye shall be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5.48 Number 3. There must be a constant and increasing appreciation that though sin still remains, it does not have the mastery. There is a total difference between surviving sin and reigning sin the regenerate in conflict with sin and the unregenerate complacent to sin. It is one thing for sin to live in us, it is another for us to live in sin. It is one thing for the enemy to occupy the capital, it is another for his defeated host 
to harass the garrisons of the kingdom. It is of paramount concern for the Christian and for the interests of his sanctification that he should know that sin does not have the dominion over him, that the forces of redeeming, regenerative, and sanctifying grace have been brought to bear upon him in that which is central in his moral and spiritual being, that he is the habitation of God through the Spirit, and that Christ has been formed in him the hope of glory. This is equivalent to saying that he must reckon himself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ his Lord. It is the faith of this fact that provides the basis for, and the incentive to the fulfillment of, the exhortation, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to the end that ye should obey its lusts. Neither present ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Romans 6, verse 12 and 13. In this matter, the indicative lies at the base of the imperative, and our faith of fact is indispensable to the discharge of duty. The faith that sin will not have the dominion is the dynamic and bond service to righteousness and to God, so that we may have the fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Romans 6, verses 17 and 22. It is the concern of sanctification that sin be more and more mortified and holiness ingenerated and cultivated. The Agent of Sanctification It is necessary to be reminded that in the last analysis we do not sanctify ourselves. It is God who sanctifies. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Specifically, it is the Holy Spirit who is the agent of sanctification. In this connection, certain observations require to be made. Number 1. The mode of the Spirit's operation in sanctification is encompassed with mystery. We do not know the mode of the Spirit's indwelling, nor the mode of His efficient working in the hearts and minds and will of God's people, by which they are progressively cleansed from the defilement of sin, and more and more transfigured after the image of Christ. While we must not do prejudice to the fact that the Spirit's work in our hearts reflects itself in our awareness and consciousness, while we must not relegate sanctification to the realm of the subconscious and fail to recognize that sanctification draws within its orbit the whole field of conscious activity on our part, yet we must also appreciate the fact that there is an agency on the part of the Holy Spirit that far surpasses analysis or introspection on our part. The effects of this constant and uninterrupted agency come within the scope of our consciousness in understanding, feeling, and will. But we must not suppose that the measure of our understanding or experience is the measure of the Spirit's working. In every distinct and particular movement of the believer in the way of holiness, there is an energizing activity of the Holy Spirit, and when we try to discover what the mode of that exercise of His grace and power is, we realize how far we are from being able to diagnose the secret workings of the Spirit. Number two, it is imperative that we realize our complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We must not forget, of course, that our activity is enlisted to the fullest extent in the process of sanctification. But we must not rely upon our own strength of resolution or purpose. It is when we are weak that we are strong. It is by grace that we are being saved as surely as by grace we have been saved. If we are not keenly sensitive to our own helplessness, 
then we can make the use of the means of sanctification the minister of self-righteousness and pride and thus defeat the end of sanctification. We must rely not upon the means of sanctification but upon the God of all grace. Self-confident moralism promotes pride and sanctification promotes humility and contrition. Number three, it is as the Spirit of Christ and as the Spirit of Him who raised up Christ from the dead that the Holy Spirit sanctifies. We may not think of the Spirit as operative in us apart from the risen and glorified Christ. The sanctifying process is not only dependent upon the death and resurrection of Christ in its initiation, it is also dependent upon the death and resurrection of Christ in its continuance. It is by the efficacy and virtue which proceed from the exalted Lord that sanctification is carried on and such virtue belongs to the exalted Lord by reason of his death and resurrection. It is by the Spirit that this virtue is communicated. Perhaps the most significant passage in this connection is 2 Corinthians 3 verses 17 and 18 where Paul says that the Lord is the Spirit and then indicates that the transforming process by which we are transformed into the Lord's image is by the Spirit of the Lord, or perhaps more accurately, the Lord of the Spirit. However we may interpret the expression at the end of verse 18, it is apparent that the sanctifying work of the Spirit not only consists in progressive confirmation to the image of Christ, but is also dependent upon the activity of the exalted Lord. See 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45. It is the peculiar prerogative and function of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ by taking of the things of Christ and showing them unto the people of God. See John 16:14 and 16 and 2 Corinthians 3 verses 17 and 18. It is as the indwelling spirit that he does this and as the advocate with believers. John 14 verses 16 and 17. The means of sanctification while we are constantly dependent upon the supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit, we must also take account of the fact that sanctification is a process that draws within its scope the conscious life of the believer. The sanctified are not passive or quiescent in this process. Nothing shows this more clearly than the exhortation of the Apostle, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13 The salvation referred to here is not the salvation already in possession but the eschatological salvation 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 and 9 1 Peter 1 verses 5 and 9 and chapter 2 verse 2 And no text sets forth more succinctly and clearly the relation of God's working to our working God's working in us is not suspended because we work nor are working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation as if God did his part and we did ours, so that the conjunction or coordination of both produced the required result. God works in us and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us, not the willing to the exclusion of the doing, and not the doing to the exclusion of the willing, but both the willing and the doing. And this working of God is directed to the end of enabling us to will and to do that which is well-pleasing to him. 
We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we have also the incentive to our willing and working. What the Apostle is urging is the necessity of working out our own salvation, and the encouragement he supplies is the assurance that it is God himself who works in us. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. The exhortations to action with which the scripture is pervaded are all to the effect of reminding us that our whole being is intensely active in that process which has as its goal the predestinating purpose of God that we should be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans 8.29 Paul says again to the Philippians, And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, so that ye may approve the things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense unto the day of Christ, being filled with the fruit of righteousness which is through Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Philippians 1 verses 9 through 11 And Peter in like manner, Yea, and for this very cause, adding on your part all diligence, in your faith supply virtue, and in your virtue knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control patience, and in your patience godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, they make you to be not idle nor unfruitful unto the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1 verses 5 through 8 It is unnecessary to multiply quotations. The New Testament is strewn with this emphasis. See also Romans 12 verses 1 through 3 and verses 9 through 21. Also chapters 13 verses 7 through 14. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Galatians chapter 5 verses 13 through 26 and 25 and 26. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 through 32. Philippians chapter 3 verses 10 through 17. Chapter 4 verses 4 through 9. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 25. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 8 through 22. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 14 through 16. And chapter 13 verses 1 through 9. James chapter 1 verses 19 through 27, chapter 2 verses 14 through 26, chapter 3 verses 13 through 18, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 25, chapter 2 verses 11 through 13 and verse 17, 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 14 through 18, and 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 through 11 and chapter 3 verses 17 through 24. Sanctification involves the concentration of thought, of interest, of heart, mind, will, and purpose upon the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus and the engagement of our whole being with those means which God has instituted for the attainment of that destination. Sanctification is the sanctification of persons and persons are not machines. It is the sanctification of persons renewed after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. This prospect it offers is to know even as we are known and to be holy as God is holy. Everyone who has this hope in God purifies himself even as he is pure. 1 John 3.3 3. Chapter 8 Perseverance 
experience, observation, biblical history, and certain scripture passages would appear to provide very strong arguments against the doctrine which has been called the perseverance of the saints. Is not the biblical record as well as the history of the church strewn with examples of those who have made shipwreck of the faith? And do we not read that it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they fall away, to renew them again unto repentance? Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 Did not our Lord himself say, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman? Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. John 15 verses 1, 2, and 6 Yes, faced with the facts of history and the scripture passages like those quoted, it must be said that the interpretation of scripture on this question is not a task for the indolent. What does apostasy mean? What does the scripture mean by falling away? In order to place the doctrine of perseverance in proper light, we need to know what it is not. It does not mean that everyone who professes faith in Christ and who is accepted as a believer in the fellowship of the saints is secure for eternity and may entertain the assurance of eternal salvation. Our Lord himself warned his followers in the days of his flesh when he said to those Jews who believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye truly my disciples, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8, verses 31 and 32. He set up the criterion by which true disciples might be distinguished, and that criterion is continuance in Jesus' word. It is just what we find elsewhere when Jesus said, He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Matthew 10.22 It is the criterion applied also in the epistle to the Hebrews when the writer says, We are partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Hebrews 4.14 It is the same lesson that is the burden of Jesus' teaching in John 15 in connection with the parable of the vine and the branches. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. John 15, verse 6 The crucial test of true faith is endurance to the end, abiding in Christ, and continuance in his word. This emphasis of scripture should teach us two things. One, it provides us with the meaning of falling away, of apostasy. It is possible to give all the outward signs of faith in Christ and obedience to him, to witness for a time a good confession and show great zeal for Christ and his kingdom, and then lose all interest and become indifferent, if not hostile, to the claims of Christ and his kingdom. It is the lesson of seed sown on rocky ground. The seed took root, it sprang up, but when the sun arose it was scorched and brought forth no fruit to perfection. Mark 4, verses 5, 6, 16, and 17. There is, of course, a great deal of variation within this class of people. Some appear to be converted. They boil over with enthusiasm for a little while and then suddenly cool off. They disappear from the fellowship of the saints. Others do not show the same enthusiasm. Their attachment to the faith of Christ has never been one of very pronounced character. But in the course of time it becomes precariously tenuous 
and finally the tie is completely broken. They walk no more in the path of the righteous. Number two, we must appreciate the lengths and the heights to which a temporary faith may carry those who have it. This is brought to our attention to a certain extent in the parable of the sower. Those compared to seed sown on rocky soil received the word with joy and continued in this joyful experience for a season. In terms of the similitude, there was the blade and sometimes there may be the ear. There is not only germination, there is also growth. The only defect is that there is never the full corn in the ear. To a greater extent, it is brought to our attention in the language of the epistle to the Hebrews when it speaks of those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Hebrews 6 verses 5 and 6 It staggers us to think of the terms of this description as applicable to those who may fall away. They advise us, however, of forces that are operative in the kingdom of God and of the influences these forces may exert upon those who finally demonstrate that they had not been radically and savingly affected by them. It is this same fact of apostasy from faith and its corresponding experiences that Peter deals with in 2 Peter 2, verses 20 through 22. It cannot be doubted, but Peter has in view persons who had the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who had known the way of righteousness, and who had thereby escaped the pollutions of the world, but who had again become entangled in these pollutions, and had turned from the holy commandment delivered unto them, so that it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned again to his vomit, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. The scripture itself, therefore, leads us to the conclusion that it is possible to have very uplifting, ennobling, reforming, and exhilarating experience of the power and truth of the gospel to come into such close contact with the supernatural forces which are operative in God's kingdom of grace that these forces produce effects in us which to human observation are hardly distinguishable from those produced by God's regenerating and sanctifying grace, and yet be not partakers of Christ and heirs of eternal life. A doctrine of perseverance that fails to take account of such a possibility, and of its actuality in certain cases, is a distorted one, and ministers to a laxity which is quite contrary to the interests of perseverance. Indeed, it is not the doctrine of perseverance at all. This leads us to a better understanding of the aptness and expressiveness of the designation, the perseverance of the saints. It is not in the best interests of the doctrine involved to substitute the designation, the security of the believer, not because the latter is wrong in itself, but because the other formula is much more carefully and exclusively framed. The very expression, the perseverance of the saints, in itself guards against every notion or suggestion to the effect that a believer is secure, that is to say, secure as to his eternal salvation, quite irrespective of the extent to which he may fall into sin and backslide from faith and holiness. It guards against any such way of construing the status of the believer because that way of stating the doctrine is pernicious and perverse. 
It is not true that the believer is secure, however much he may fall into sin and unfaithfulness. Why is this not true? It is not true because it sets up an impossible combination. It is true that a believer sins, he may fall into grievous sin and backslide for lengthy periods. But it is also true that a believer cannot abandon himself to sin. He cannot come under the dominion of sin. He cannot be guilty of certain kinds of unfaithfulness. And therefore it is utterly wrong to say that a believer is secure quite irrespective of his subsequent life of sin and unfaithfulness. The truth is that the faith of Jesus Christ is always respective of the life of holiness and fidelity. And so it is never proper to think of a believer irrespective of the fruits in faith and holiness. To say that a believer is secure, whatever may be the extent of his addiction to sin in his subsequent life, is to abstract faith in Christ from its very definition, and it ministers to that abuse which turns the grace of God into lasciviousness. The doctrine of perseverance is the doctrine that believers persevere. It cannot be too strongly stressed that it is the perseverance of the saints. And that means that the saints, those united to Christ by the effectual call of the Father and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, will persevere unto the end. If they persevere, they endure, they continue. It is not at all that they will be saved irrespective of their perseverance or their continuance, but that they will assuredly persevere. Consequently, the security that is theirs is inseparable from their perseverance. Is this not what Jesus said? He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. It is to the same effect that Peter writes of those who have the living hope of an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven. They are those who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1 verses 4 and 5 There are three things particularly noteworthy. Number one, they are kept. Number two, they are kept through faith. Number three, they are kept unto the final consummation, the salvation to be revealed in the last time. It is not keeping for a little while, but to the end. And it is not keeping irrespective of faith, but through faith. Let us not then take refuge in our sloth or encouragement in our lust from the abused doctrine of the security of the believer. But let us appreciate the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and recognize that we may entertain the faith of our security in Christ only as we persevere in faith and holiness to the end. It was nothing less than the goal of the resurrection to life and glory that Paul had in mind when he wrote, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3 verses 13 and 14 The perseverance of the saints reminds us very forcefully that only those who persevere to the end are truly saints. We do not attain to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus automatically. Perseverance means the engagement of our persons in the most intense and concentrated devotion to those means which God has ordained for the achievement of his saving purpose. The scriptural doctrine of perseverance 
has no affinity with the quietism and antinomianism which are so prevalent in evangelical circles. But while it is true that only those who persevere are saints, the question remains, will the saints persevere? Is it so ordained and provided by God that those who do truly believe in Christ will persevere to the end? The answer to this question is emphatically yes. Here it is just as important to deny the Armenian tenet that the saints may fall from grace as it is to counteract antinomian presumption and license. It is true, of course, that the expression fallen from grace appears in the scripture, Galatians 5.4. But Paul is here dealing not with the question as to whether or not a believer may fall out of the favor of God and finally perish, but with defection from the pure doctrine of justification by grace as opposed to justification by works of law. What Paul is saying in effect is that if we seek to be justified by the works of the law in any way or degree whatsoever, then we have abandoned or fallen away entirely from justification by grace. We cannot have a mixture of grace and works in justification. It is one or the other. If we interject works to any degree, then we have given up grace and we are debtors to do the whole law. See Galatians 5.3 This teaching of Paul is germane to the whole question of perseverance. For no one tenet of our faith is more important in the promotion of perseverance than the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. But Paul is not dealing here with believers who fall out of the grace of God. That would be inconsistent with Paul's own clear teaching elsewhere in his epistles. Indeed, it is to Paul's own teaching that we may appeal first of all to establish the position that the saints will persevere. Who are the saints in the terms of the New Testament? They are those who are called to be saints, the called of Jesus Christ. Romans 1 verses 6 and 7 It is quite impossible to separate what the New Testament means by sainthood from the effectual call by which sinners are ushered into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.9 Now we must ask, what in Paul's teaching are the relations of this calling which constitute a person a saint? He tells us in Romans 8 verses 28 through 30. Here we have an unbreakable chain of events proceeding from God's eternal purpose in foreknowledge and predestination to the glorification of the people of God. It is impossible to remove calling from this setting. The called are called according to purpose. Verse 28. The purpose is antecedent to the calling. And that is what Paul says again in verses 29 and 30, where he expounds the purpose of God in terms of foreknowledge and predestination. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Moreover, just as calling has its antecedents in foreknowledge and predestination, so it has its consequence in justification and glorification. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, 
containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.